time. My X-ray vision hatched the Kairani. You planned this all the time. You're the prisoner, not Argon. Of course, you fool. That was my plan all along. You're not getting away with it, Salandra. I already have. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Today, we are celebrating the beloved comic book writer, Marty Pascoe, who sadly passed away about a week ago. Now, for this episode, I'm one of your hosts. I'm the Irredeemable Shag, and I am joined by my fellow network all-stars, Rob Kelly. Howdy. Ryan Daly. Hi there. Chris Franklin. Hello. Max Romero. Hi, guys. Awesome. Well, guys, uh, it's a sad occasion we're here, but we're not. I don't think we're really here to be sad. We're here to say how much we love the work of Marty Pascoe. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Folks, if, if you're not familiar with Marty, you are absolutely familiar with his work, okay? So th- this guy, sadly, by the way, he died at the age of 65. Way, way too young. But uh, amazing comic book writer, has touched all kinds of DC products. He's written comic books. Uh, he's written TV shows. He's written animated shows. He's worked on theme park rides. It, it, the guy's uh, a book of stuff is amazing. Now, I mean, he's most associated with Superman. Now, Chris, I'm going to throw it to you there. Do, do you know him as a Superman guy, or to you, is he something else? Well, yeah, it that's what jumps to mind at first. I think of him as, as one of the guys like Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan that worked for Julius Schwartz during the Bronze Age, uh, writing Superman, uh, to act, Superman in action. But, uh, yeah, but I also think of him as the, a Batman the Animated Series guy, too. So, but, but yeah, primarily comics, I think, of Superman. Now, Rob, you've got some uh, favorites of his. I mean, Justice League, goodness, you did a whole blog dedicated to that comic book. I mean, were those some of your favorite issues that he did? Yeah, he wrote a lot of great issues of Justice League. In fact, he wrote... Uh, Justice League of America number 122, which is an Aquaman-centric issue, Ooh, which we right. actually we actually covered on Fire and Water a while back. I, I remember seeing that comic uh, at the very first uh, comic book specialty shop that I ever uh, went to, and I was as I was going through the boxes, and I only had limited money to spend, despite my reputation, and I was just kind of <laughs> going by what the covers were, and there's this cover by Mike Grell of all the JLAers at Aquaman's grave. And they're like, poor Aquaman is dead, and we never knew who he really was. I was like, ooh, this is an Aquaman-centric issue. Let me get this. And I love that story because I felt like Martin Pascoe really knew how to write Aquaman and, and made him like really, really super cool. And the other thing about Martin Pascoe that I always think about is like growing up – it seemed like only like ten different people wrote all of comics. You know, like if you were there, it was like you saw like the same ten names. It was like Carrie Bates, Elliot S. Magan, Jerry Conway, Martin Pascal, Paul Kupperberg, you know, like Bill Mantlo. You kind of saw like the same and I always just thought as a kid, I, that just sounds like a cool job. You right. know, like how do you how do you get that job? And so Martin Pascal was just always one of those names I just saw on everything. And of course we've been going through his his bibliography and we'll we'll get into it. Like he wrote like every character character for DC at least imaginable. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. And then even outside of, you know, comic books where he touched on all these different things. I mean, you mentioned Batman already, Chris. He worked on Roseanne, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Buck Rogers, Twilight Zone, GI Joe. He is responsible for coming up with the phrase Ookla the Mock for Thundar, which, you know, had a huge effect on me personally. And then Ryan, I'm going to throw it to you cuz uh, you're well known as the largest Max Hedrum fan in the North America. I mean, he he had a huge impact on you as well. I, this is the first I've actually heard of Marty Pascal. This podcast. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Ryan does Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and Marty wrote Saga the Swamp Thing right before Alan Moore, right? He, he did. He has that distinction of being the guy who opened for Alan Moore on that <laughs> book, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. The, uh, I actually I, – I was kind of thinking about going back to where I knew him best from. And when I was sort of getting into DC and more of reading more of DC's history, which has only been for like the last 15 years or so, there were a handful of writers that seemed kind of ubiquitous from this certain period of time in the 70s and 80s that I could never really keep track. It seemed like they just popped up everywhere. And no kidding, like I I hadn't consulted with you guys or talked about anything, but it was the names you guys just mentioned. It was (laughs) Marty Pascoe, Carrie Bates, and Elliot Magan. And I could like it's like if you if you showed me comic, I was like, okay, I know it's one of those three guys wrote it, but I couldn't tell you which one. But I knew if it was one of those guys, it was always of a certain quality. And that was until I started reading Swamp Thing, uh, and it kind of coincided picking up the saga of the Swamp Thing, which was Volume Two, which started in the early '80s. Uh, DC brought it back to coincide with the release of the much beloved movie uh, by Wes Craven. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was reading back issue issue '92 which was all about, you know, sort of like the the Bronze Age horror characters, um, which features an article about uh, Phantom Stranger by Rob. And actually, Rob, I think you you sent me this issue. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. And there's an interview (laughs) with Marty Pascoe. signed, I'm sure, too, right? (laughs) Of course. No, he he actually, he would charge $20 for that. But yeah, he talked all about his his history with his book, how he came aboard. He actually, he started as Joe Orlando's assistant on the very last couple of issues by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson from the first volume. And that's where he he kind of explained that he loved that book so much. Uh, And when he was given the opportunity, and and Len Wein handpicked him to do the revival, the second series, because he knew that Marty had the the kind of writing style that he could, he could, Swamping has to be written with a certain sort of prose in order to get it. At least that was Len Wein's feeling at the time. And Marty could kind of ape what Len Wein had brought into it and also infuse it with his own. Um, so if you read, uh, you know, uh, Pasco wrote, I think, 17 of the first 19 issues uh, of that volume. He only took a, a short little break and then was succeeded by Alan Moore, and most people associate a Swamp Thing with Alan Moore's run, so uh, it's often forgotten, the the uh, uh, Marty Pascoe issues, but some of them are really, really good. And Now, Max, you've got a special relationship with him, because for a while, it does, is Marty Pascoe responsible for some fantastic Plastic Man stories? Yeah, I mean, he, I think Marty Pascoe was kind of responsible for what people thought of when they thought of Plastic Man in, in that kind of Bronze Age era where he became more of a comedy character and he was uh, just kind of silly, just kind of played for laughs. And, you know, the the story we'll be talking about later even talks about how Plastic Man is kind of in his own, (laughs) kind of in his own comic universe in a sense. And, you know, a lot of that was was Marty Pasco. I mean, he, he started writing it. Well, he, the, what I'm familiar with is when he started writing the adventure comics, plastic man stories, starting with, uh, adventure comics, number four, six, nine. And, uh, that series started with four, six, seven, ran through four, seven, eight. And, you know, there were other writers, but I think Pasco is the one who really kind of cemented what kind of story, uh, what kind of storylines that there were going to be. And they were very silly. They were, they were funny. They were, um, Imagine if Dick Tracy was Plastic Man, <laughs> you know, complete, <laughs> complete with, you know, bad guys with names like Brickface and Pink Eye, you know, and, and things like that. And, and that was that was Marty Pasco. And like you guys were saying before, he he wrote so much. He wrote so many stories and so many different styles. 
And but he was almost kind of always in the background for me. I, I think the first writer I really noticed by name was probably Carrie Bates because I was a big Superman guy. And as I went on, I realized that, you know, Pasco's name was showing up everywhere in everything. And, you know, he could do horror, he could do adventure, he could do comedy. And I, you know, I think that really speaks to his talent as a writer. That's a good point. You're right. It's very, very diverse, you know, and, and looking at his television credits and again, writing mm-hmm. for a theme park ride. I mean, this guy, is, he's got talent coming out of everywhere. For me personally, I've read a lot of Pasco stories and never even associated that it was sort of like what you were saying, Max. I didn't really realize it was him, even though I was reading him, or I didn't process it. And it probably wasn't until I was rereading one of my favorite comics of all time, and I was probably reading it, I don't know, the sixth or seventh time, until I started to recognize the names, was First Issue Special with Dr. Fate. And I'm not going to say much about it here because we've covered it once before in the network. We're actually going to be covering it again soon. And a little <laughs> later, Rob, we're going to be probably touching on it when we get to your comic, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I, that comic for me is probably the first time I recognized that name is important to me because I really, really like this story. And so then I started noticing him more and more. And now, even as a – and I feel stupid. There's even other times I read something and I didn't even – like reading his bio, I realized that he wrote some of the Star Trek newspaper strips. I didn't even know that, and I've read the Star Trek newspaper strips and loved them. I'm like, oh, here's Marty. I didn't even know that I was loving something he was doing. It's just, it's great. Now, I, I, we are going to issue a demerit to Rob Kelly at this point, by the way, because we've been on this podcast for a few minutes, and he has missed an opportunity to mention Alan Brenner. And I'm pretty sure that's on your bingo card, Rob, is you have to bring him up as often as possible. <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give Marty his due. That Yes, he does have some connection to Alan Brenner. He co-wrote some stuff with Alan. But, but uh, actually, something I wanted to get on before we move off this is, that, of course, Ryan just talked about his run on Swamp Thing, and then Max talked about his run on Plastic Men. Those runs were almost, con- almost overlapping, mm-hmm. which to me underscores how talented he was that he could write something as silly as Plastic Man and I love those stories in fact Max and I covered a few of them on Fire and Water and then jumped to Swamp Thing which is about as far away from Plastic Man as possible (laughs) I love that they both stretch. Yeah, he was he was actually asked in that article that that I mentioned from the Back Issue Magazine art, the interview. Um, he was actually asked if he found it more difficult to write superheroes and go to something horrific or something like that. And he was like, "No, just because from like the era that he was growing up with, like all these all these writers that we've been talking about, in order to survive, they had to write for everything. They had to write westerns, horror, superhero, romance, every genre. Like they they had to be." Uh, they had to have that that, that um, versatility in order to just to, to make sure that they could always have work. There just wasn't enough going around. I, I want to springboard off of what Ryan just said. You know, there's, if you want to get a sense for who Marty Pascal was, definitely check out those back issue articles. There's some great ones on Doctor Faith he talks about. Also, uh, there's a great podcast, much better than ours, called Word Balloon uh, with John Suntress, where he interviews comic creators, and he did several episodes with Marty Pascal. And you can actually sit there and listen to Marty himself talk about the craft of comic books. And I brought this up on a lot of shows. Marty said something in one of those episodes that always strikes me, which is they used to break kids into the comic industry telling them to write a short story, like an eight-page story. You're talking about the versatility there, Ryan, because they had to show that they could do a beginning, a middle, an end, character development, make you care, all of this stuff in eight pages. And he says, you know, you think it would be easy, 
because it's you know only eight pages because that actually makes it much much harder and that's how they would train new writers and hearing him to explain this story it's always fascinated me so i highly recommend you go back to listen to those word balloon episodes with him he also talks about another one of his jobs which i found fascinating where he was a liaison for dc to warner brothers and so when they were vetting scripts and looking at animation programming things like that they would come to him and he had to he was their consultant like on continuity issues specifically for like smallville and birds of prey and things like that so hearing him talk about that job and how it related to you know being being kind of a continuity cop for dc with warner bros it's really fascinating stuff yeah you know those guys like your your marty pascos and your carrie bates and elliot s maggins and 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 those guys of the bronze age like you said they came up you know, through guys offices like Julius Schwartz, he gave them short stories. He gave them all. They got all different genres. That was kind of a time when the comic book writer was. I don't want to diminish what they did, but they were just asked to create an entertaining story every month. There was no ego involved. They were not the superstar creator on the book. This is my run. On Superman, you know, you might write Superman this week. You might be writing House of Mystery the next week. You just had to, you just had to produce uh, uh, an enjoyable, entertaining comic book story. Uh, you know that. I mean, that's that. To, you know, the the presses were running. Let's get a, a story out there, and that's not to diminish. That does not, in my mind, diminish anything those guys did. They managed to produce all these different types of stories in different genres with different voices whatever the character whatever that strip demanded they met it and i mean i think that's kind of a lost art form in comics and you can say that on like tv and all sorts of media where you know never not everything was an over stretching arc you know it was just right. you had to come up with a good story this month buddy you know, <laughs> yeah. was it to you know into- just to just to build on what chris is saying you know it's I think, you know, people think a lot of us older fans are just kind of always, you know, lamenting and rend our clothes about the, the loss of the done in one comic. But it's it's the same thing in prose is if, you know, uh, a short story is usually considered to be harder to write than a novel because you, you have to get everything into this tight space, you know, and you have to make it compelling and you have to make it good. And it has to have, you know, like you said, Shag, uh, I, th- I think it was no. Ryan, who said, you know, it needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. No, no that was that was me. Ryan's that not nearly you. that smart. <laughs> I was going to say, it doesn't sound like something I was <laughs> Well, that's why I said it as a question. I was like, Ryan? But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but um, you know, and to, to, to go back to what I was saying before, you know, Pasco had this, this talent to be able to write in all these different styles and, and different genres and to do it well and to do it in one story, you know, and to do it consistently. I mean, if you read, if you read those... Um, Adventures, you know those those stories that he did for Adventure Comics. You know those um, that world that he built for Plastic Man in particular is consistent in every story that he does, and the characters are consistent. Everything, you know, and and I'm sure it's the same thing for everything else he ever did, and that's really hard. And that that I, again, I think that just really shows how um, it's it's strange how much he was in the background compared to other writers when he was obviously such a good writer. To, to build one more thing on that too, the craft you guys are talking about, the the effort they put in, the development, and how amazing these works are. Uh, take another step back and think about okay, one, like one of the stories I'm going to be talking about is over 40 years old, and 
not only was a great intertwining story, and I'm here celebrating 40 years later, I'm not supposed to be. That was supposed to be disposable. It was supposed to be written on the shelves for two months and then gone and never seen again. And yet they built such amazing works and fantastic efforts in, like you said, in that time crunch, make a fun story, that it was so good that 40 years later we're still talking about it. And that was never the intention. It wasn't supposed to be that good. It was just supposed to be good enough to sell the books that month. So huge, huge props to these guys. Just like our podcast, which we'll be listening to 40 years from now. <laughs> if anyone's still listening to us 40 years from now, I, they have my pity. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of people that have my pity, we should thank our sponsor real quick before we start getting into uh, these issues we want to cover. Folks, this episode of the Fire & Water Podcast, FW Presents, is sponsored in part with your Patreon support. You know, because running the network with so many shows and Ryan's insane amount of debt, uh, it really uh, puts a lot of burden on the resources. And so for the past several years, we've been absorbing all these costs. And uh, we asked you guys to step up and help us out uh, a while back, and we launched a Patreon, and you guys have been absolutely incredible. And if you're enjoying this show or any of the shows on the Firewater Podcast Network, the best way to support our network is by visiting our Patreon. Uh, Rob, what's that Patreon address? Patreon.com slash Podcast. Exactly. And please go there and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship levels, you'll get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows, just like these folks. Our thanks to David A. Scudieres and Gord Tolton. So, again, just uh, go out to our Patreon and check it out, folks. Uh, Patreon dot com slash fw podcast now uh we're going to get into uh we've each picked a marty pascal issue that we wanted to talk about that we have some love for in fact we've got some comics that we love so much we're not going to talk about them here today because we're saving them for a future episode on a different uh show in this network chris you're holding one back right yes i am holding back the life story of superman uh which was originally from action comics number 500 uh, which is exactly as you would imagine. It is. It, it's in a very clever way. Uh, Pasco and Kurt Swan, of course, uh, tell the life story of Superman as Superman leads a group of people through the newly opened Superman Museum. But the real cool thing about this, and cool but somewhat tragic, as as I'm sure Rob would agree, is this <laughs> was intended to be a treasury comic. <gasps> Yeah, so, you know, someday maybe Rob and I will talk about this on Treasury Comics because it's a great story. And I, and from Treasury to Almost Digest, I had it in a little tour paperback called The Superman Story. That's where I first read it, a little black and white paperback. So, and that, along with The Untold Legend and the Batman, were my uh, comic book Bibles when I was oh. about six or seven years old. So, <laughs> so good. So yep. good. I had no idea they did it as a paperback. Mm hmm. Yep. Little black and white paperback. It's got uh, Jose oh, Luis Garcia cool. Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. name. Cover. Yep. It's, uh, yep. It's, it's, I, I, it's this still got the same copy. It's worn and beaten up, but I can still read it today. So, yeah, we will definitely do that for Treasury Cast someday because that is a great comic. Yep. I'm holding back, and I mentioned already once, but I'm holding back the first issue special coverage of Dr. Fate because I talked about it on one episode with Kyle Benning a number of years ago when we were just talking about how much we love Dr. Fate and how that comic informed so much of what came after that. And then Rob and I, uh, on our show Digest Cast, we actually put out a poll and let the listeners on from Patreon choose the next Digest we cover, and it, they picked the Justice Society Digest, which includes a reprint 
of that Dr. Fate issue, which I cannot wait to get in and cover again. And it sort of ties into what you're going to talk about, Rob. Is that right? Yeah, the story I picked is a Dr. Fate story. It is from Flash number 306, and that was when uh, they started Dr. Fate as a backup strip for uh, The Flash. And, and who did he take over real, for? What do you mean? Firestorm vacated the back of The Flash. Oh, and okay. Dr. All right. took over the spot. That was in the 290s. Okay, I was thinking, I was like, wait, 304, 305, there was no backup strip. Okay, no, no, gotcha. it was, there was, it was Firestorm, then there was one issue off, and then Dr. Fate took over. Was it really? I didn't yeah. know the Firestorms ran that far. Yeah, he okay. went to 304, right. then 305 was a was an off issue, and then 306, Dr. Fate came in. Oh, I had no idea. Okay, it's well, okay. Yes, we just, so you have a Dr. Firestorm network, you're part of the show. It's no big deal. You don't have to know this. I, I don't pay attention to Firestorm. Who cares? Uh, so, <laughs> but yes, yes, the story is uh, Dr. Fate. It's, it's from Flash number 306. It's called Apocalypse of the Fifth Sun, of course, by Martin Pascal, drawn by Keith Giffen and Larry Malstead. And uh, I'm going to get into some of the, the – here's the plot basically, but then there's other stuff I kind of want to – cover more than just the, the details. It's a, a terrible vision from the crystal orb of Naboo warns Dr. Fate of an incoming threat as he goes to the Boston Museum of Natural History, where some cults, cultist has performed the sacred ritual to bring the powerful Lord of Chaos known as Totec. In the meantime, Inza Nelson is alone at the Tower of Fate, pondering her current situation with the man she loves. Inza recalls the events that caused Kent Nelson to meet Naboo, the Lord of Order, when he was just a child and he was trained in the powerful mystic arts until he became uh, Regent and was bestowed the powers of Naboo in the form of the sacred items, the helmet of fate, and the amulet of Anubis. Inza's memory jumps forward to the most, most recent event where she discovered, discussed with Kent for the divergence that the presence of Dr. Fate was causing in their lives. Just a few months prior to the grim warning by the Crystal Orb, Nelson told Inza that her need for attention is just as important as his quest as fate, and if she can't understand that, then they might not have a future together. After remembering, Inza decides to seek Nelson and try to help him, but unknown to her, Dr. Fate is currently in the middle of a fight against Totik. Their powers are evenly matched, and the fight seems to get nowhere until Inza breaks into the place and Fate becomes distracted by her presence. Totek notices the distraction and uses it to his advantage by grabbing Inza and using her against Dr. Fate. Unable to use his magic out of fear of harming her, Fate is defeated, and Totik captures them both before he starts the final summoning that will cause the fifth massive extinction event on earth so the reason part of the reason i'm so impressed with this uh story is and as we talked about earlier is that you really had to have your chops if you could write a story with a beginning middle and end in only eight pages Mm -hmm. and this is only eight pages this is just a super brief story this is the first solo Dr. Fate story since that first issue special that Martin Pascal wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Fate had made appearances, but other than a, other than um, a Secret Origin special, which is retelling his origin, this was his first solo appearance in like six or seven years. And they, I love the fact that they gave it back to Martin Pascal after writing the last one. And, you know, Pascal has to do so much scene setting here to set up to remind people who Dr. Fate is, who Inza is, what's the whole deal with the helmet of Naboo. And he does it really beautifully. And I remember getting the these comics at the time and i love dr fate i always had i had the superpowers action figure and i was so excited that dr fate was getting a solo strip again and when i went back and reread these backups for this episode i was like these really hold up they are really fun so it's a damn shame that dr fate didn't get a uh, a solo book written by pascal because he really had a handle on this character he everything him and Simonson did in that first issue special was was groundbreaking. Everything from the like everything you know about Doctor the Ankh 
You know, everything, everyone associates the Ankh with Dr. Fate. That came from Marty Pasco and Walt Simonson together. In, in, you know, in the 30 years Dr. Fate existed before that, it was never around. I'm a huge Dr. Fate fan. He's one of my top five favorite superheroes of all time. I mean, I'm looking right now at a stack of action figures on my bookshelf. I got a painting on my wall of Dr. Fate. I love the character and it all comes from Marty Pasco. It's, it's so damn good. And that, the, this, uh, this backup strip really was, it wasn't just his, his first, uh, uh, book in a long time. It was his first ongoing, really, since he'd had in the 40s. And so that's what part of the reason it made it so exciting. And boy, by the way, now this isn't about the writing of the CR, but uh, Keith Giffen, he can draw Enza super hot, by the way. I'm just saying. She is very comely in this story. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of cheesecake and beefcake in this story. You see Ken mm-hmm. with just his little yellow trunks on, and Enza's like a classic hippie chick. But yeah, these these are really, really fun, these stories. And uh, like I said, it, I wondered if when it, it came time to write this back up, uh, whoever decided to, to do it, did they pick pascal because he had written that one story and i guess it had been well received or was it just a coincidence or whatever but but yeah i think he really had a handle on this character and he again he does a great job of of reminding everybody who this what the concept is what the relationships are he's not afraid to write kent nelson as kind of a dick really because mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of mean to him in some ways uh i like this this villain they've got going on i mean it this is a really fun story, and again, this and this is after Pascal had already written many, many regular-sized comics, 20, 30-page stories, and then he goes back to write write something eight pages, and it's like being able to flex that muscle again must have been kind of challenging, but he did a real good – of course, he was doing that with Plastic Man as well, though those stories were a little longer than this. But uh, no, I was just super impressed all over again of how much fun these Dr. Fate stories are. Now, they were reprinted in the uh, the Immortal Dr. Fate, which was a really nice Baxter print. Seriously, has anyone else read these stories before? And crickets, y'all suck. Okay, I read them so. in the. I was reading the Flash, so I, I hit and miss. I read some of them because you know newsstand distribution. But I enjoyed what I was reading. I just I was a little confused when I'd come into the next, you know, skip an issue or two and then come back into it. But yeah, I enjoyed it because I was a big Doctor Fate fan too. So well, if you can't afford the old Flash issues, seek out the Immortal Doctor Fate, which was reprinted, and they've even done some trade paperbacks here and there. You can find it reprinted in there. These are so good. They're so exceptional and. uh can't can't say enough good things about it. Mm. Uh, Ryan, speaking of like you know moody sort of pieces, why don't you tell us about the Swamp Thing issue he wrote? All right, the story that I wanted to talk about is Saga of the Swamp Thing issue four. Uh, this is a story called In the White Room, written by Pasco, of course. The artist was Tom Yates. The editor was Len Wein. And this is a story. It takes place in the town of Pineboro, Arkansas. And in this town, over about the past year, there have been a dozen brutal, savage murders of children. These kids have been found mutilated. It's a horrible thing that has just traumatized this entire town. At the start of the story, the killer has been caught by the police and is being held and and is about to be arraigned. So all of these news and media figures have descended on this town to cover it. It's kind of like the crime of the century thing. And the killer is this television personality named Uncle Barney, who is basically a cipher for Mr. Rogers. That bothers me because I think Mr. Rogers is above reproach, but I'm not going <laughs> to hold that against the writer in this case. And what we find out is that Uncle Barney, this character, is not a 
perverted, deranged psychopath. Um, he, he was desperate and kind of accidentally summoned a demon and was possessed by said demon. And once he has captured the demon, immolates him and then possesses a TV producer uh, who, who kind of came to this town. And that sort of gets Swamp Thing involved in the story. Um, this was at a, at a time when the way Pasco took over the series, uh, sort of following in the mold of the first 10 issues from the, the Len Wein run, which is Swamp Thing is basically a monster on the road type of story. It's not dissimilar from the Incredible Hulk TV series. Um, you know, this is before Alan Moore reinvented him as the Avatar of the Green. There's no parliament of, of trees in this. You know, he, he's not like a, a living essence or vessel for all of vegetation. He's just a monster who looks like he's made of broccoli. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was a, these are really different types of stories. But so essentially, he's just he's an incredible Hulk type of character who befriends this mute little girl in the first couple of issues, and that takes you the, this year long saga of what you figure out is up with her. But this was just a, this was a very uh, noteworthy story right away. This ended up being reprinted, I think, in one of the Blue Ribbon Digests for, like, the year's yep. best comics. But Marty Pasco actually said in interview that this was the issue of the whole run that he was the most proud of. It opens up with this very striking shot on page two of the killer in this room. It's all white. You don't get any walls or any kind of panel breakdown. It's just him on a stool looking at these pictures, the photographs of his victims, um, and the thing about this is the issue ends with a dedication to the people of Atlanta. And I wasn't sure, but I, I checked it out and it was in the year before this issue came out, Atlanta had been the victim of these child murders for about two years. Uh, Ooh, and I think, so this yeah, and I remember that. that. This was something that was just kind of in the culture and the zeitgeist. And he picked up on that and used it as the basis for this Swamp Thing story. So again, we're, we're talking about a guy who wrote Superman Wonder Woman, Batman cartoons, Plastic Man, Doctor Fate, Blackhawk comics—all these things that we love—but he also had the training. I mean, as we said, he started out writing just like these these short horror stories for Julie Schwartz or or Joe Orlando, and he could he could figure out what was going on in the culture. And obviously, something about the, the coverage of these these child killings in Atlanta seeped in, and he used that as the framework for the Swamp Thing story. So he could do crazy action adventure stuff. And and he could do this very serious, you know, the, the horror that men do type of story. That's that's really where we are, the monsters and everything. And, and again, the, getting into just like the, the versatility and what, what these guys of this era, the, a writer of his caliber was able to do and just change lanes was really, really incredible. You know, this story was my introduction to Swamp Thing because I, I read it in that, in that digest, in that Blue Ribbon digest. And it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> it, is, it is dark. It is so dark. And, um, you know, and the way it's drawn, but the way it's written, it's just, it's, it's horrifying. And like Ryan was saying, you know, it's this evil that men, that men do sort of thing. Because, yes, it's supposed to be a demon and all this, but it's kind of, you get the sense that people can, are capable of this. And that was where the real horror was. And to this day, that is probably, I mean, you know, of course, I love Alan Moore, and you know, he reinvented the character. But this actually might be my favorite Swamp Thing story. I, I mean, it's definitely a, and I like the fact he uses a Mister Rogers type with this Uncle Barney thing. But I mean, that's also playing into the fear of like a John Wayne Gacy serial killer type mm -hmm. of guy who was a children's clown performer type of thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. certainly those types of things. And, and Max, I think 
I think I remember. I think I, I mean I know when you were on Midnight of Podcasting Hour, we didn't talk about a Swamp Thing story, but I think I remember you mentioning this story. Yeah, um, yeah, I probably, I probably did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, that's uh, my story that I was going to share is is almost exactly Max's. I I I may have known Swamp Thing from a a DC Comics Presents or a Brave and the Bold before this, but this was the first actual Swamp Thing story that was put in front of me. And yeah, it, it, again, it just like him, it scared the living crap out of me. And it was such a, it was such a, such a, a kick in the seat of the pants compared to everything else in that book. I mean, I was probably too young to even understand it when I first got it, honestly. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's powerful. And, and then of course later I got, oh, it's the, you know, the, the titles, the reference to the, 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 is that Cream or Derek and the Dominoes song? It was you know? Cream. Cream, yeah, song yeah. Cream, White Room, yeah. Yeah, in the white room. So it's like, you know, I, I can sing the first, you know, you know, it's, it's running in my head right now. So, uh, but yeah, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, yeah, it's quite a shocker in that, in that digest. <laughs> I, I think the only criticism I can come up with that is, uh, the, the one unrealistic thing in that story is if it, if a television producer got possessed by a demon, I don't think you'd be able to tell a difference. <laughs> well, he was he was strong enough to pick Swamp Thing up and put him on a meat hook and a butcher in like a, a freezer. So I think okay. that was the only tell. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, All right. And, and there goes the Fire and Water TV show. Way to go. Way to go. <laughs> It's okay. Rob was going to be the producer anyway, so you know he's already evil. Um, all right, Chris Franklin, why don't you tell us something that's not a comic book? What? Yeah, I know. I, I didn't pick a comic book because uh, Martin Pascoe and, and amongst all his other many feats in his career, he was a story editor on Batman the Animated Series. And, of, of course, the you know, I mean, we're all fans of the animated series, and I happen to do a podcast where we cover shows set in that DCAU uh, so I thought this would be a good one to talk about. He uh, he actually, in addition to being a story editor, which means he you know touched almost every episode that that came out of the classic Batman the animated series. He also was a co-writer on arguably the best Batman movie. Maybe maybe it's not arguable. I don't know. But uh, Mask of the Phantasm. He co-wrote. <laughs> Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which many people, you know, believe is the best Batman movie, animated or otherwise. And I really don't want to argue with him because I, on most days, I tend to agree with him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he wrote an episode himself uh, called See No Evil, which was directed by Dan Ribba, who directed a lot of DCAU shows, including JL, uh, Justice League that Cindy and I cover on JLU Cast. Uh, but... Uh, in that episode, a little girl named Kimmy is visited by her imaginary friend Mojo, but it turns out Mojo is her ex-con father, Lloyd Ventress, who has stumbled upon a, a material which allows him to turn invisible. Now, Lloyd is unable to convince his ex-wife he's made something of himself, probably because she figures out he's been stealing things, which he has in, in his role as an invisible man. That's what he's using the, the invisible material for. But uh, since he can't convince her to hook back up with him, he kidnaps his daughter. Uh, luckily, Batman gets involved and is able to save the little girl and Ventress from himself because the invisible material is slowly poisoning him. Now, the reason I picked this episode because, you know, it's not it's not a Joker episode. Uh, it's not a Two-Face episode. It doesn't have a big-name villain. This is a made-for-the-animated-series villain. But I, I feel like this one gets overlooked uh, unfairly because I think it's really one of the better-crafted episodes of the series. 
because Pasco is able to convey a sense of building dread and personal danger because from the moment that we see Kimmy in her room talking to Mojo, you feel like something's up. Like there's just this, there's something in his voice that says, yeah, yeah. Plus we're in the universe. We're in Batman's universe. So we know something's not going to be quite right, but he really does a great job. There's a creepy unsettling mood that permeates this entire episode. I mean, the settings in like a quiet suburb of Gotham, there's, you know, a, a small little grocery store. They live in a little small, modest house. And there was an abandoned drive-in right next to their house where Batman and, and the Invisible Man actually have their, their climactic fight. And I feel like it's like, it's got this, it hit me, it's got this almost Carpenter Halloween-like quality about it. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of the night he came home, you know, uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways. There's this completely adult moment in the episode when Lloyd appears uh, unexpectedly t- to his ex-wife Helen at her place of work. She's leaving the grocery store she works at. He follows her to a local cafeteria on her lunch break, and he tries to buy her lunch to impress her. And in this short scene, Pasco is able to paint a picture that of what these two people's lives were like. You get the whole feeling of how she fell for this guy. He was no good. They had a kid. He got sent to prison and she's got a restraining order against him because they even mentioned that, you know, you're supposed to stay 100 feet away from me. And this is on a kid's cartoon, guys. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is supposed to be selling Kenner action figures. Right. So uh, but he does manage to work in some fun bits as well in this one that I got to mention when Ventress like goes into a jeweler's convention. He's planning to rob it blind as the invisible man. He locks the bathroom door to change into his invisible suit. And you see a security guard. He turns the doorknob and he impatiently asks, Hey, who locked this door? And you're thinking, okay, it's a security thing, but no later he, you know, of course he runs out and as he becomes as invisible man, nobody notices, but later, you know, when he starts, you know, jewelry starts floating through the air and disappearing, and, you know, people get knocked over. Bruce Wayne runs into the bathroom to change the Batman. And it's right before the guard arrives. And the guard is checking the door again. And he nervously looks around, biting his lip. And he's practically doing the pee-pee dance. Uh, <laughs> so you get the idea. This guy's really got to go. It's seconds later, Batman slams the door open and flattens the guard behind it. And you can just infer what happened to the guard's bladder after that. But... Uh, <laughs> But now, now Ryan pointed out something that I didn't know. Now I'm sure if when I started looking it up, I would. But he pointed out to me I did not know this because this this you know Batman the animated series always has a great voice cast. But Elizabeth Moss, the star of the recent Invisible Man film, she was the voice of young Kimmy in this episode. So she spent an entire career in life being plagued by invisible men, apparently. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, and in the cast, you know, you've also got Michael Gross from Family Ties. He's Lloyd Ventress. And man, he is creepy as he's yeah. channeling some of that tremor stuff he's got, you know, and, uh, and Gene Smart, uh, from Designing Women is Helen. So, I mean, it's just, it's a really tight, solid episode. I mean, it's, it's, Again, it's not the Laughing Fish. It's not a Harley episode, but I, I think it's one of the best episodes of the series because it's just like we talked about with the comics. It's a done in one. It's very, 
It's crafted within an inch of its life. It's it's just a real winner. I, I recommend everybody, if you got the DCU app, it's out there. If you got the box sets, go find this one and watch it. It's great. I'm glad you picked this one because this is this has always been one of my favorite episodes of the series too, for every reason that you said. I there's definitely a, a maturity and a sophistication to the writing to this episode that's a little bit above what you're used to seeing. And and yeah, for being an episode that doesn't have the Joker or Two Face or Clayface, it's this invisible man guy that we. You've never heard before, but that's just the gimmick. It's really this story about a broken family and a father that is willing to kidnap his daughter at the end to be with her. He's willing to break the law for his love, but it's it's this very uh, broken and kind of mutated kind of love that's just unhealthy. Uh, and yeah, the voice cast, like I, I even before like the new Invisible Man movie came out, I was like, yeah, I recognize all these people because I knew Elizabeth Moss from The West Wing where she played the president's youngest daughter and also got kidnapped on that show too. So she definitely <laughs> got this team coming out. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and the I've always remembered this one in part because of the ending, the, the final climactic fight when Batman and the Invisible Man are fighting on this rooftop. And I, I posted the, a clip to this on, on Facebook afterwards. He throws up like, the battering like Shuriken up to this water tower and it starts leaking and raining down on Ventress and Batman is able to see the outline of him because of the water and he just he balls his fist and, and when Lloyd sees me he's just like peekaboo yeah <laughs> he starts throwing hands and the foley work on this like the sound effects this is like a hard hard five hits and he's just like you kidnapped this kid and you put me through the ringer with your stupid invisible suit I am going to enjoy this ass woman and it's <laughs> <laughs> so harsh, such a brutal beating. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, Chris, didn't uh, he win a daytime Emmy for his work on Batman the Animated Series? I believe he did. Yeah, yeah. So that's amazing. I, yeah, yeah. He was. He, you know, that. I mean, I, you know, you get, you know, of course, Bruce Tim and and Paul Dini. Their names get thrown a lot, you know, around a lot, and 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 then then you get here Alan Burnett, Eric Radomski, and all those guys are super important. But you know, I think Pasco definitely deserves uh, some credit for making, the, you know, Batman animated series is still the best animated series of any comic uh, character. So I mean, it uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that as well. And he went on to write some of the uh, early Batman Adventures comic books, too, before Kelly Puckett took over. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So good. All right, Max, why don't you tell us uh, about some Plastic Man, buddy? All right. Um, what I'm going to talk about is uh, DC Comics Presents number 39, which uh, is, of course, uh, Superman. And he teams up with Plastic Man in a story called The Thing That Goes Woof in the Night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, written by Martin Pasco, of course. Uh, Joe Staten and Bob Smith on pencils and inks. Uh, Gene D'Angelo on colors and uh, edited by Julie Shorts. It opens with Superman flying through Plastic Man's unnamed city and um, spotted by Plastic Man and Woozy, who's riding on, on Plastic Man's back, as he tends to do. And uh, Superman is there to stop a propane t uh, truck from blowing up and Plastic Man lends an assist by acting as a, um, a retaining wall. And But Superman flies off right away and, and they're... You know, they're kind of like, oh, well, what was that about? It turns out Superman's in town to cover something as Clark Kent, and he, so he's got to get to work. But while he's there, he sees um, the Toy Man, who is there for a toy convention, and um, but who is who has gone straight? He's trying to go straight. And meanwhile, because of course, you know, this is a jam-packed story. At the same time, the um, 
there is a low-level crook at a nearby bank called Flip Top who is, uh, you know, just hanging around because that's what you do, I guess, when you're a criminal, and notices that the vault door opens. And so uh, it turns out that Flip Top works for a very strange criminal <laughs> called Dollface who looks like a young girl doll thing. It turns out that the security guard who is killed at the bank robbery later is an NBI agent, which gets Plastic Man involved. And uh, throughout that, they go back and forth, and it turns out that the toy dog that the toy man has invented works on a, barks at a frequency that opens the vault door, <laughs> which is... <laughs> of course um, it does. <laughs> and Plastic Man ends up saving the toy man from getting killed by a flip-top and doll face, but then Toy Man is angry that someone's biting on his act, and in the end, they end up, you know, working together, and so do Superman and um, and Plastic Man, and eventually Plastic Man and Superman and Woozy and Jimmy manage to round up all the crooks, stop a, a giant bank, uh, a big bank robbery, and everyone is good. And at the end, Woozy says, "Hey, hey Superman, check it out. I have my own uh, Plastic Man signal watch, and it turns out to just be a little." cuckoo watch of woozy yelling help help plaz save me help and everyone runs away <laughs> and i i know i kind of went through that fast but the thing is is that this story there is so much going on you know you have you have what six seven main characters going running around there's the plot there's a subplot and and it all kind of weaves together which I, I again i think is something that um showed a real talent on pascal's part because he just you know, this is a not a long. I mean, this is an average story, but there is so much going on, and every character has something to do. And it's nice that you can tell that Pasco is having fun with this. And even though it's it's silly fun, you know, because Flip Top, the guy Flip Top, basically his his he wears a giant toupee like a fro, I guess, like a toupee that flips open, and he takes miniature you know things out of his head, and. <laughs> You know, it's just a crazy story, and and it's um, but it all makes logical sense. It's not just funny. It's not funny for the sake of being funny. It's it all moves the story along. And one of my favorite bits is actually kind of a throwaway line from Superman as he's flying through the town. He's looking, you know, at the people and the things, and he's saying, "This is a really weird town," which kind of, which like I said before, kind of makes Plastic Man has almost kind of carved out his own little sub-universe in, in this world and and it's it's a place where things like this can happen you know where where a wind-up dog called waldo the wind-up woofer will somehow open up bank vaults and and it's it's just it's just a lot of fun and i think that was a hallmark of of pasco's work on plastic man and this came out a year it came out about a year after his last story in adventure comics but i think it says something about what he was doing that dc wanted him to essentially continue with this version of plastic man you know in in whatever way he could because these these stories would show up in different you know there was one in super friends number 42 which i'm hoping to talk with uh talk about with rob on on um, for all mankind someday, hint, hint. And, <laughs> PayPal, you know, Max, PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't have any shame. And there's, um, you know, and so he, he was still popping up. And so DC obviously liked Pascal's version of Plastic Man, but it just, it 
never seem to get any legs beyond this. You know what I love about this particular issue, Max, is that, yes, I agree that, like, he really did carve out, like, his own little world for Plastic Man. Uh, and, and and by the way, I love all the villains. Like, he, he mm-hmm. rivals E. Nelson Bridwell for the sheer number of villains <laughs> oh that God. he created that basically were never seen again, that only exist in the Plastic Man universe. But what I love about this comic is that in normally DC Comics Presents, the guest star is visiting Superman's world. Yeah. But in this, it's the exact opposite. It's Superman visiting the Plastic Man world because, as you said, they got Pasco to write it and Joe Staten to draw it. So I love that it is a continuation of those adventure strips and Superman's just guest starring in it, which I think is a really fun touch. <laughs> yeah, and, and what's nice too is that Superman is a little bit flat-footed in this in this world. You know, he's he's uh, he's still Superman, obviously, and he's still doing his his job. And but you know, he kind of feels fish out of water here, which is you know always kind of kind of a neat thing to see for Superman. You know, it, it uh, humanizes him a little. So besides the, the obvious inclusion of Woozy Winks instead of Bad Luck Hula, would, would this oh. be a contemporary of the cartoon and be going about the same time as the cartoon? Um, no, because this came out in 80... Boy, you're, you're testing my, my memory on these on these. If dates. only I, I knew a Plastic Man expert. <laughs> mm. No, I believe that uh, the, the cartoon had already ended at this point. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, Rob, Rob can... can uh, Back me up on this if it's if it's correct or not. Um, yeah, no, this story this story was after that. Yeah, it was okay. it was after that. You know, there in the comics, there was never really any kind of um, connection between what was going on in the cartoons and and uh, in the comics themselves. This this was something. Um, Marv Wolfman wrote the first story in Adventure Comics, and I guess it sort of set the tone. But but Pascal really took the ball and ran with it, and he he took something that another writer was was working on because it went from Wolfman to uh, Len Wein to Pascal, and Pascal became more or less the regular writer after that, and he really kind of made it his own. But there was no connection between uh, the cartoon and and. Uh, and this, and in the comics, there has never been a bad luck hula. It's always been woozy. When right, like, yeah, I, I knew that part. So that's I was asking otherwise. Okay, all right. And I like how I, Wolf is in the name here, and Wolfman was uh, associated in the early days. I like the connection there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I remember this comic really well. As soon as you were talking about it, Max, all these panels. Just I remember the guy flipping his hair up and pulling yeah. things out, and and the dog, and the and and the uh, doll face, and all that stuff. I mean, that that's the thing too. I mean, much like uh, Bribwell does in Super Friends. I mean. These 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 comic writers back then were just creating villains and different adversaries every month. That you know nowadays it'd be like a I'm not, I sound like an old man get off my lawn, but I mean literally it really would. It'd be like a it'd be like a six issue story arc to introduce a villain that you know it's right. like they're gone by the end of this issue and they never return. Unfortunately, they don't even make it into who's who, which is a shame, <laughs> you know. But because uh, I'd like to see Flip Top, uh, you know, in a, in a diagram of his powers or something in this. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and Joe Staten, who you know, he's he, he was such a good partner with Pascal because they they Pascal's writing style and Joe, and Staten's the style that he the cart the very cartoony style he uses for his Plastic Man stories works really well together. And it and again, you know, it, it sets it as something that's a part of the DC universe, but also separate from it, where you kind of get the sense that okay, anything goes. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and take the floor then for the last one here. I am covering actually two issues because you know. I put it together, and I, I get to be the boss, and I broke the rules. So I'm doing two issues rather than one, but there's a reason. Uh, I'm doing uh, Metal Men number 48 and 49. These came out in 1976 in July and September of that year. And check out this pedigree, folks. It is 
Uh, Martin Pasco is writing the script on both issues. Uh, He also helped plot the second issue. The first issue was plotted and edited by Jerry Conway. So Jerry Conway was the outgoing who took over. So the first issue was sort of their transition issue. And both issues were drawn by Walt Simonson. So just stunning. This book is amazing. And I stumbled across it uh, sort of by accident. I I didn't know much about the Metal Men at the time. And this was about the time that Eclipse of the Darkness Within was coming out. And I was all in on that, that, of course. And I started going back and finding old Eclipse of Appearances. And I stumbled across these Eclipso appearances in Metal Men. And uh, I mean, again, just stumbling across this creative team. Wow. So I'll give you the recap and then we'll talk some more about it. So in the story, Doc Magnus and the Metal Men, they get recruited to help stop Eclipso. Now, the villain is taking control once again of Bruce Gordon's body and is seeking an ancient scroll which will allow him to revive an ancient dark god. Now, once the dark god Umbra awakens at the end of the first part, uh, we then, going into the second part, we discover that it's all tied into Eclipso's origin. And Umbra plans to bring forth other dark gods from the ancient times to seize control of the Earth. So they put together a plan. They, they steal Eclipso's black diamond and they use it as a focus. Doc Magnus devises this massive laser, again using the black diamond as the focus, using the metal men as the, the housing of the laser, and they blast Umbra back to the bottom of the ocean. And there they recapture Umbra in his prison dimension by locking him in, by reassembling the Stonehenge uh, up like blocks under the sea. That's the real super short version at, at 10,000 foot level that I hear someone talk about a lot. But this thing is an absolute blast. It is like super high octane. Of course, Simonson, I mean, nothing is absolutely ever wrong with Simonson's art. But it's got the Metal Men. It's got Eclipso. Dark, you know, Simonson drawing dark, evil gods. I mean, this, it, this is 76, long before he draws Thor. But the DNA of that kind of stuff is right in here. you got flying ships and submarines and lasers and ancient lost cities and scrolls and Stonehenge underwater. And there's fun chapter titles. and There's snappy banter in the dialogue. I mean, this thing is great. And I hadn't thought about it in years. And what made me think about it was uh, when, when, when Marty passed away. Walt Simonson posted on Facebook saying that he had had three opportunities to work with Marty Pasco, and he'd always wanted to do more. And those were the first issue special, Dr. Fate, and these two issues of Metal Men. And I was like, man, I think I have those somewhere in my collection. So I went seeking, and, and I got my hands on them. And, uh, man, just they're, – and they're not reprinted anywhere. So they're not even in the DC Universe app. you got to find them. I realized that these are the stories that made me fall in love with the Metal Men. Now, Rob and I, over the years, Rob, we've talked about the Metal Men here and there, just peripherally. You know, we, we did the, the Jim Aparo covers, and I talked about the Metal Men, and I just, I'm always professing my love, but I can never tie back to where it started. This is it. These issues. Uh, I, I cannot recommend them highly enough. Pascal, again, uh, Jerry helped script, uh, plot, I'm sorry, the first one, but the second one's all Pascal, and again, it's just super high octane. It never stops going. They go from location to location. They're flying to other countries, they're flying to tropical islands or at the bottom of the ocean. It is super cool. Now, I, I'm going to ask this question, and I'm sure the answer is no, but has anyone ever read these before? I didn't think so. Okay. But <laughs> I, 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 and I knew I set myself up for failure there. I cannot re- recommend them highly enough. Issues 48 and 49 of The Metal Men, uh, they will make you lifelong fans of The Metal Men, absolutely. And, and they deserve to be collected. They really, really do. You hit on something, Shag, about uh, that, you know, the stuff's not been collected. And I think it's probably because Pascal didn't have that kind of like rock star persona that there is no like. 
you know, great collection of Marty Pascal stories. And so you have to really hunt these down. I've seen a little of, the, of these metal men uh, briefly. And, yeah, they are fun. And the Swamp Thing run is good. It's like we're talking about all these great runs, and yet none of these things are really collected. Like the Plastic Mans aren't collected. It's like you have to – if you want to read this stuff, you have to go find back issues. Or if you're lucky, you'll find it on the DC app. But that makes it really hard. But that's too bad because that means that people aren't going to be able to experience this stuff as easily as some other creators because the stuff's not been collected. You know, yeah. and that's something I would I would love to see that. You know how they've they've done you know greatest stories by Alan Moore and Grant, mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing. I would love to see a, a Pascal collection. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I I think that at one time, like years and years ago, DC did a Walt Simonson book because he really hadn't done that much DC work, so they put it all in one book. There were Batman stories and the Metal Men. I remember there was Batman on the cover and the Metal Men on the <gasps> cover. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've never got that. I've never. Oh, it's reprinted according to Mike's Amazing World. Reprinted in the Art of Walt Simonson uh, trade paperback from 1989. So there you Oof. go. All right, yeah. folks, go find that or find the issues. So. Yeah, and I'm looking at this cover. I mean, I know we're talking about the art instead of the uh, cover, but I'm looking at this cover of issue number 48, and I can't believe that that DC logo is on this cover because this cover looks like it's at least from 1981 or two. And it's mm-hmm. the, the, the the older DC Bullet, you know. It's like that doesn't that looks like a much later cover because it's by Walt Simons, and so it just tells you these guys were firing on all cylinders. So yeah, I'm def- I definitely want to check this run out. And, and Pasco, it, it's his. It's so again. There's a lot of clever banter. The 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 metal men, the way they speak. It's not like Bob Haney, you know, snappy Titan style. But there's a hipness to a lot of the things that they say. Like at one point, they're like, "Take it in the eye, crater face." I mean, just funny bits and and, and great clever dialogue. And there's great moments where like there's a punch the air moment with Doc Magnus, and it's coming from the the story, not just in the art too. So and again, seventy six Pasco had only been writing for four years at this point, and uh, it's great. Great set of comics. Very, very entertaining, and it makes me very happy. Well, he's been a bunch of great books and, and TV shows and stuff, guys. Well, what a what a fantastic creator. Let, let me ask you guys something. Is there? I mean, Pascal was such a such a workhorse, and he worked on so many characters. But were there any characters that he didn't do or didn't do enough that you would have liked to have seen him mm. do more of? He actually did work on the Aquaman run in Adventure Comics, mm-hmm. uh, which is my favorite run of all time. And he co-wrote those stories, so he never got. I don't think he never. I don't think he ever wrote a solo Aquaman story. But like I mentioned, he wrote that issue of Justice League that focuses on Aquaman that I think really makes uh, good use of the character. And so. I would have loved to have seen Marty Pascal get a run on Aquaman. I think he really had a handle on the character, and I, he never really got that chance to do him as a as a solo feature. So I, Aquaman would be I, – I hate to be so obvious, but Aquaman really would be my choice. <laughs> I would have liked – I don't know if he ever did. I mean it's so hard to keep track of everything that he ever wrote. But I would have liked to have seen him take on some of the Western characters. I would have li- really liked to have seen something like Batlash. Mm. Yeah, he could have made that fun. Now, I know he did some of the – I'm looking here at his bibliography over on uh, on Wikipedia. I don't see Westerns in there. I, I see some mm-hmm. war stuff, which is a, a completely different genre, but still is another niche. I, um, but I, if, yeah. you, if you go to Mike's Amazing World and you put in his name, it will show you all of his credits. That's and true. you'll see that he wrote – some horror stuff. He wrote Vampirella. He wrote some stuff for Creepy. He wrote a story for Strange Sports Stories, one of the weirdest <laughs> books ever published. He wrote published. Cobra. 
Remember he wrote the, Cobra. Yeah, from from DC, the Cobra story. Oh, I, I wanted to I wanted to mention that I actually interviewed Marty uh, by mail by email for the a back issue story I wrote about Cobra, and he was a very good storyteller uh, in a nonfiction sense. Like he was able to tell me about working on Cobra, and he was very entertaining on that level. And some of his other credits, he actually wrote some stuff for Atlas Seaboard during like the three months that company was in, <laughs> in the yeah. business. He wrote for the Devilina magazine. He wrote DC Comics' Tales of Ghost Castle. So while while we focused on superhero stories, he did write other genres too. Mm-hmm. So you can find all this stuff again. Just go to Mike's Amazing World, and you'll see the link. He wrote some issues of Joker. He wrote Man Bat for Pete's sake. So he wrote a, wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, to answer Max's question, what he didn't write a lot of was Marvel comics. Um, actually, he only wrote uh, the Star Trek comic when Marvel was publishing it, and then their license for the Disney Gargoyles cartoon. He wrote the first six issues of that. Um, but I don't think, not according to Mike's Amazing World, he never wrote any like Marvel superhero stories. So I would have been interesting to see that. Getting back to what Rob was just saying about Cobra, actually, there was one other thing that I did want to spotlight uh, and maybe preview because it's something that Chris and I might tackle at some point in the future on Batman Nightcast. There was a book called, it was a dollar comic, it was the Five Star Superhero Spectacular. It was one of these DC special series. Uh, and it's an anthology with five stories. It's got a Batman story, an Aquaman story, Green Lantern, The Flash, and The Atom. Uh, this book has one of my favorite comic book covers I've ever seen. It's a Neil Adams cover with all five of these heroes kind of like running out of an exploding earthy background. Uh, and, and I just love this one. And there was a time about two years ago where I, I kind of had this idea of um, like uh, all of us at the network would take one of these stories, you know, and kind of like we'd each cover one story from this in like uh, one of our big all encompassing network, you know, get togethers or something like that. Um, and, and I, I just bring it up as a, because we're talking about like a tribute to a fallen thing. I like, I had in mind that zoom would be in charge of the green lantern story. Cause zoom was such a, a green lantern fan. That plan actually never went to fruition. Some jackass said we should do, Hey, the first issue of Marvel comics instead, um, <laughs> what a jackass exactly um, that's a true story <laughs> um, but I, I did want to mention that because Marty Pasco wrote the Batman story at the end of this book and it is basically a culmination of his run on Cobra the Cobra right. book got cancelled and he folded basically what would have been the conclusion to that or, or an ending into this Batman story um, and maybe maybe that will get some life. Maybe Chris and I, now that we've changed formats, we might actually tackle that Batman story on Nightcast someday. I don't know. Yeah, I'm up for it. Well, to, to answer Max's question, and, uh, and I'll chime off of, uh, I think it was Chris who said he didn't write many, Mar- or was it Ryan who said didn't write many Marvel comics. Looking at the common thread through a lot of the stories we just covered is ancient dark gods. You know, there was an ancient dark god in the Metal Men story. There was an ancient dark god in the Swamp, or a demon in the Swamp thing. The Doctor Fate has an ancient god. So, and apply that to Marvel and sort of the creepiness. I think he, he could have done a really great run of something like a Doctor Strange or a th- even a Thor or even Ghost Rider. He would have really had a, a really interesting take on a, a nice run there in Marvel. I think I would really like to have seen. So, folks, we just named a whole bunch of great comics. We will have an image gallery out on our website. Rob, what's that website? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep. 
and we'll post uh, some of the covers and some of the images from these issues, and uh, just so you guys can get a taste of some of him, Marty's writing, and some of the artists that he was working with, and some of the moods that he created in his stories. Really fantastic. And we want you to go out in the comments and tell us some of your favorite Marty stories. Tell us stuff that you've loved, or some of your books, or you comment on these. We'd love to hear from you guys. And uh, what do you, should we go around the horn, everyone just say where they can find you guys on social media? Obviously, they can find you in the Firewater Podcast Network. We know that. But, like, where could they find you guys on social media if they want to interact with you guys? Every ninth Twitter account is mine, so just head there and you'll be able to find me. That is factual. Okay. Uh, Ryan? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Daly. Uh, right now, it's I'm Ryan Daly won't release his tax records. Uh, you can find me <laughs> on Facebook, uh, Ryan Daly. Uh, yeah, I, I've got several shows on the Fire and Water Network, which you, if you're listening to this show, you've probably heard me. Chris, where can they find you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Facebook, and, uh, you know, about once a month when I drop an episode, I'll check out Twitter and then, you know, just retweet everything you guys <laughs> posted the rest of the month. So, uh, so but that, I'm at, at Supermates Pod there, so that's where you can find me. <laughs> He's not kidding. We, we know when Chris goes on Twitter because we all get the notification that he retweeted 30 things of ours. <laughs> Sorry. I've got 78 retweets this morning. Oh, Chris was on. I see. Okay. Max, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at It's Plastic Man on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find me at The Mirror Factory on both of those, and uh, find me on the network at Plastic Cast and The Mirror Factory. Fantastic. You can find me as Firestorm Fan and all the other places with the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That's going to do it, everybody. We don't really have a catchy sign-off here, because this is FW Presents, our anthology show, but thank you so much, and uh, go out there and read some Marty Pasco comics everybody Ventress the suit it's poison so what if it is I don't care As long as I have it, I can take my daughter back whenever I want. Her mother won't be able to stop me, and neither will you! No! Peekaboo.